Well, terrific to be with you. Let's uh, pray as we turn our hearts and minds to God's word. Lord, as we uh, come to hear from you now, uh, we pray that you would speak uh, and that you would give us open ears and soft hearts that we might uh, believe the word you've spoken, we might trust in you, and that we might live lives to your glory. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a number of years ago, uh, I was part of a team of people that every summer would go to a kind of holiday town outside of the city and uh, run a kids program for a few weeks, help people find out about Jesus. Uh, And we used to store the equipment for this kids program in a big shipping container down on the coast. And uh, there was like tents and fridges and all sorts of things in there. Uh, And one year, me and a small group of guys had to go down and sort of move some old things out and put some new things in, and we spent a morning sort of hefting furniture and and that kind of thing in the shipping container, and we thought at the end of it, we've earned a burger. And so we went to the local burger joint, and we uh, ordered ourselves our burgers, and we sat down on some grass overlooking the ocean. It was really beautiful. We sort of were all tucking in, and then my friend Scott, uh, he gets his burger, and he goes... Uh, 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 uh. We're like, what are you? He's, he's always making jokes. What are you doing, Scott? Like, what's the story? Uh, 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 uh. He dislocated his jaw trying to get it around the burger. Uh, what ensued was kind of a comedy of errors. We sort of went to the local doctor and uh, they sort of poked and prodded and he's, oh, and, and um, okay, you're going to need to go to the hospital. That's about an hour and a half's drive away. And he's like, uh, uh, uh. what? Writes that painkillers question. Yes, okay, here's some painkillers. And, and then uh, went back to the, the burger joint and we're like, do you have any ice? Because our friends just, you know, tried to guilt them, dislocated his jaw trying to eat your burger. And they, no, we've got a bag of frozen onions. So anyway, bag of frozen onions on his face, in the van, off we go to the hospital. Ends up getting kind of injected with some muscle relaxant and they popped his jaw back in. Um, I, I actually can do that in case that happens to you. I can do the jaw thing. I've learnt the technique because he kind of... He was in the hospital and he, it had popped out and then gone back in and he's just sitting in recovery and he starts sort of wiggling his jaw and the doctor came past and said, don't, what are you, don't do that, it's, you know, what are you doing? He's, doctor went away and starts doing it again and the guy who was with him is like, what, don't, what are you doing? Don't do this. He's like, well, if there's anywhere where it's going to go, if I know, can know where the limits are and sure enough, it popped out again. And, um, so I know the technique now. Um, why do I tell you that story? It's because uh, kind of being out of joint, being dislocated is uh, the way a lot of Christians and churches, I think, are feeling in Australia right now. Uh, the church, which used to be close to the centre of society, now often finds itself sort of squeezed to the margins, treated with suspicion, if not outright hostility. There are some reasons for this, of course, various royal commissions, the antics of leaders both within and outside the church who who claim the name of Christian. In fact, uh, Swinburne University has developed a thing called the Australian Leadership Index. It's an ongoing study, and they they look at all sorts of different organisations that make contributions to public life. And they've actually, when I last looked at it just a couple of weeks ago, um, they currently list religious institutions like churches as the lowest of all not-for-profits in terms of public perceptions of the leadership we offer and the contribution we make to society. We come in under charities, professional sporting clubs and trade unions, and then us. And so in many ways we're kind of dislocated and out of joint in our own society, a little bit like, like Daniel and his friends. 
living faithfully as, as followers of the God of Israel in a foreign nation. I probably don't have to tell you and kind of that actually what we feel this the last couple of weeks it's been a thrust into the spotlight with the Essendon Football Club thing uh, and you may feel it yourself actually individually or as a church you may find you're facing pressure uh, not necessarily direct kind of government sponsored persecution though that does happen to Christians in different parts of the world but but of being put in kind of impossible seeming situations you're asked to choose between your convictions and your reputation or your career or, or key relationships. And this passage from Daniel chapter 2 uh, helps us. It speaks into this situation, the impossible situations of being and feeling out of joint and dislocated. Uh, it, it gives us resources, actually, uh, in this situation and points us to spiritually where we can turn. And so what we're going to see as we work together through this passage, if you have a Bible, you might like to get back to Daniel 2. Uh, we're going to see Nebuchadnezzar's impossible demand, Daniel's insightful response, God's infinite wisdom, and finally God's world-upending intervention. So we'll begin with Nebuchadnezzar's impossible demand right there at the beginning of the story in verses 1 to 3. We see Nebuchadnezzar, the supreme ruler of the empire of Babylon, experiencing something that strikes dread into his own heart. Verse 1, in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, Nebuchadnezzar dreamed such dreams that his spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. So the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king the dream. When they came in and stood before the king, he said to them, I've had such a dream that my spirit is troubled by the desire to understand it. Now, we haven't even been told yet the content of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. That turns out to be a pretty vital point in the story. But we see he's deeply troubled. Whatever he's seen, it's keeping him up at night. Now, now if you make a study of Nebuchadnezzar's behaviour over the first few chapters of Babylon, and if you just happen to have open next to you the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, uh, which is the kind of field manual for psychologists and mental health professionals, uh, you'll find out that, that Nebuchadnezzar is a textbook case of narcissism. Right? I've, I've got the list from the manual. Uh, grandiose sense of self-importance. Tick. Preoccupied with fantasies of unlimited success, power, brilliance, beauty or ideal love. Tick. Believes that he or she is special and unique and can only be understood by or should associate with other special or high-status people. Tick. Requires excessive admiration, has a sense of entitlement, interpersonally exploitative, tick, tick, tick. Lacks empathy, often envious of others or believes others are envious of him or her. Shows arrogant, haughty behaviours and attitudes. Yep, all of the above. Textbook case. One of the fascinating things about narcissists, clinical or otherwise... Uh, is that the, the kind of arrogance and entitlement and self-importance, this drive for power or success at any costs, it actually springs out of a place of profound insecurity. And that's actually what we see as, as Nebuchadnezzar has this dream and then interacts with the court advisors. They, as they go back and forth in these early verses, verses 4 to 9, he makes this outrageous demand and his court advisors kind of try and suggest, well, oh, it's a bit... Could we do it a different way? And 
And it just exposes how insecure he is. Like he's, he's freaking out. And one writer puts it like this, many people with a great drive for power are very anxious and fearful. Some suggest that fear and anxiety are the reason that many seek power. However, even if fear is not the reason for seeking power, it almost always comes from having it. Those in power know that they are the object of jealousy and stand in the crosshairs of their competitors. And you see that here with Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, he's the most powerful person in the world. He knows it. He rules the Babylonian Empire. But this dream has him freaking out. It's punctured the protective layer he's got wrapped around himself. It's leave him, it leaves him feeling desperately exposed, wanting, needing to resolve this, to get rid of the sense of threat he feels as soon as possible on his terms. And the outcome is this kind of outrageous demand. Tell me what I dreamed and tell me what it means. And he puts his advisors into this impossible situation that we see in verses 10 and 11. The Chaldeans answered the king, this, there's no one on earth who can reveal what the king demands. In fact, no king, however great and powerful, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing the king asks is too difficult and no one can reveal it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with mortals. Nebuchadnezzar's not happy about this answer. <laughs> he flies into a violent, violent rage. He exerts his power. He makes this decree. Not only his court advisors, but every single sage and wise person across the whole empire is going to be rounded up and killed. I mean, talk, talk about bringing a tank to a knife fight. Just right up to 11. And we read on in verses 12 and 13, Daniel and his friends get swept up in this. The rising tide of the king's fury is, is threatening them. It's worth noting that this can kind of often be the way for God's faithful people caught up in, in violence in various situations. Um, I've actually been told by someone close to the situation that a number of Chinese Christians who travelled legally out of the country early in the pandemic back in 2020, uh, they travelled during Chinese New Year, which is allowed. They had visas to the countries they went to. A number of them attended a Christian conference uh, and have now been arrested and charged. Uh, it's unclear kind of, you know, why, but it, it, one theory is that these arrests of Christians may be part of China seeking to kind of put pressure on Western governments because of Taiwan. So it's not about, their, I mean, their Christianity has kind of got them in trouble in some ways, but they're caught up in this violence, uh, not not just because they're Christian, but for some other reason. And it's kind of what's happening here in Daniel. God's faithful people, targets kind of on their back, not just because they're God's people, but put in an impossible situation nonetheless. And so we see then uh, Daniel's response to the king's impossible demand. Uh, and it's a response that's full of wisdom and insight. You see that immediately there in verses 14 to 16. Daniel makes a kind of simple, non-anxious request. You can see it at verse 14. Daniel responded with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the king's chief executioner, who'd gone out to execute the wise men of Babylon. 
he asked Arioch, the royal official, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Arioch then explained the matter to Daniel. It's worth noticing just kind of how level Daniel is in, in kind of responding to this, even in purely human terms. Now, he doesn't react immediately to the, the surging emotions of the situation he finds himself in. Uh, I mean, it would have been easy to be reactive, actually. The king's put them in an impossible situation, made this impossible demand, and sent an executioner to their doorstep. Pretty threatening. Um, and Daniel could have reacted by sort of fighting back and justifying himself or running and hiding. But he doesn't do either of those things. Uh, instead, he asks... A simple question. He requests clarity. He wants to fill in the missing background information that would enable him to understand what, why. Why is the king's decree so urgent? It's kind of a brilliant response, actually. So simple, and yet so often we don't do it. We leap in without taking the time to get, get a fuller picture, to understand where whatever's facing us comes from. But when Daniel does it, things take a different turn. What he does next then is doubly brilliant. Right? He, he asks directly for the exact thing that Nebuchadnezzar's court advisers wanted but wouldn't ask for. He asked for time. Verse 16, Daniel requested that the king give him time and he would tell the king the interpretation. Right? Instead of trying to kind of wheedle it out of Nebuchadnezzar or somehow work around the king's demand like the, the court advisers did, Daniel says, I'll give you what you want. I'll tell you the dream and its interpretation. Just give me some time. Again, brilliant, and yet we so often don't do it. We feel like we have to respond right there and now. There's even more to Daniel's insightful response. Uh, for one thing, in verses 17 and 18, he immediately goes and gets help, did you notice? It's something I'm not great at. Uh, when I'm under pressure from deadlines and I face demands on me, I just kind of put my head down. I shut myself off. I just try and power through. But Daniel knows that giving a meaningful response to the king in this impossible situation is beyond even his great wisdom and insight. He won't be able to do it alone. And so he turns, first of all, to his friends. He gets help. He goes and gets Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, and he asks them to pray for him. He activates the prayer chain. Now, whether turning to prayer and getting others to pray for him is his first response or a last resort, and, I mean, in this case, he's got one resort, so it's first and last, uh, Daniel reaches out to his friends and they cast themselves upon God together. And there's incredible wisdom and insight in that. And actually, the result is, in verse 19, God reveals the mystery. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. This may not be the case uh, in every situation that you and I face and that the church of God faces. It won't necessarily receive a, a revelation in a dream or vision, although I 100% believe that God can and does do this. I know of many uh, people from Iran in Australia and around the world at the moment, that God is revealing himself to in dreams and visions. It may not be a promise, though, that this was going to happen in every situation. It doesn't happen, actually, to Daniel and his friends in later situations in coming chapters. They end up in the fire, in the lion's den. 
but we could still stand to learn a thing or two from Daniel's wisdom and insight, couldn't we? Because it's wisdom and insight that springs from a profound faith. Faith in a God of infinite wisdom. In fact, God's infinite wisdom is the the third key resource Daniel 2 points us towards. We hear about it as Daniel opens his mouth to praise God in verses 20 to 23. Daniel said, Blessed be the name of God from age to age, for wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons, deposes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and light dwells with him. To you, O God of my ancestors, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and power and have now revealed to me what we asked of you, for you have revealed to us what the king ordered. Uh, I once met a gentleman who worked with forestry in bushfire recovery. Uh, One thing he explained to me about his job, often with kind of regional communities that had been ravaged by bushfires, was he he would work with community leaders to go out and work out what could be salvaged uh, from the bushland in particular, ravaged by fire. And he told me, actually, that uh, that often there were trees that that prior to the bushfire could have been used for wood, lumber to make boards and planks and tables, but often the fire had burned so hot that the, the wood inside the trunk had kind of boiled and couldn't be used for the things that, that you would think just looking at the tree from the outside it could be used for. for. And so he, he said what he had to teach them was, uh, instead of just kind of looking at the outside and going, oh, yep, there's a you know, nice table that could come out of that one, you had to break the tree open and see what was going on inside. And there were still things you could use it for, but you needed to, to get in and look at it from the inside. And I want to suggest that that's what happens for Daniel and his friends here when they respond to this impossible situation that they're in by turning to God in prayer. It kind of breaks open the situation for them. They can see what's really going on. In in part, it breaks open the situation simply because they turn to God, the God who's the source of wisdom and power, because When they turn to God, they find one whose wisdom exceeds human insight, whose power outstrips even the insecure power of King Nebuchadnezzar. In faith, Daniel and his friends turn to the true and living God, the creator, the one who can fathom every mystery, who governs and steers not only natural processes, but but the, the rising and falling of kingdoms. What they find when they turn to God is what, in theological terms, we might call his transcendence. God is above it all. He cannot be threatened. No merely human political developments can can unsettle or depose him. He can't be deceived or taken aback by any human schemes or secrets. And that's worth hanging on to, isn't it? In whatever turmoil you and I might experience personally, in the local church and community, in the church, capital C, in Australia, even globally, whatever surges against us, we can turn to one 
who is awesome and glorious and majestic, the transcendent God, and find in him a calm center, a sure handholder, a point that can give us some leverage. Better still, the God who Daniel knows, the God who reveals himself to us in the Lord Jesus, is not only transcendent and far above us, he's also imminent, he's with us, closer than breathing. He's bound himself to his people and his promises. He is, as Daniel says, the God of my ancestors. He's not only a calm point above the fray, he's one who graciously enters the fray. You see, the thing Daniel knew, which Nebuchadnezzar's non-Jewish court advisors didn't, was that it's, it's not just a matter of kind of either them getting their way or Nebuchadnezzar getting his. There are more than those two options. There are more than just the human players. There's more going on than the human eye can see. In fact, the most important thing going on, the most important player in the scene, the one who can make the most decisive difference and intervene most significantly in any impossible situation, is not visible to our naked eyes. We see him with the eye of faith. We see him in prayer where he's gloriously present, active, full of faithful love and able to bring peace. This then brings us to the last resource that Daniel 2 points us towards, a resource we can draw upon as we seek to respond faithfully to living in a world out of joint, and that is God's world-upending intervention. We didn't read the end of the chapter earlier, uh, but when Daniel goes to King Nebuchadnezzar in verses 31 to 45, he does tell him both the content of the dream and its meaning. Uh, The dream features a massive statue made of different kind of parts, layers, each of a different metal, the the head of gold, the, the chest and arms of silver, the belly and thighs of bronze, the the legs of iron and the feet of iron mixed with clay. And the meaning God reveals of this huge figure is that each part of the statue represents a different empire, each one succeeding the one before it, each one becoming less glorious until the legs, the kingdom of iron that's strong enough to crush and shatter, But even that will diminish and end up being mixed, a mixture of iron and clay, partly strong, partly brittle. And ultimately, this statue as a whole will be knocked over, destroyed by by a giant rock, a stone carved out of a mountain by no human hand and hurled against these empires. They'll be crushed utterly and God's kingdom will be established, never to be destroyed. And the essence of the meaning of this vivid dream is a promise that human empires won't last. 
Not only the Babylonian Empire that King Nebuchadnezzar rules over, but every human empire, every work of human hands and power, glorious as it may be, strong, will fall and fade. Each of these empires will not only be succeeded by the next empire, you know, different in character, but but of a piece, all part of the same terrifying statue. Not only will they be succeeded one after the other, but ultimately they'll be demolished by God's kingdom, a kingdom that's of a radically different character, a kingdom that lasts where these fail. Now, it's, it's easy, of course, to find empires and any human power structure to be terrifying. I mean, they're, they're so present and visible, glorious in their way, uh, strong, and often they seem unchallengeable, the way Nebuchadnezzar seemed to his court advisers. They seem to just kind of carve up and lay out the options for us, forcing us to make these impossible choices between what we believe in our career or between our loyalty to God and our relationships with others, between belonging to God's people and our reputation in the community. But what Daniel saw and what he made known is that these empires won't last. There have been and will be other ways to see things, other ways to carve up the world, other social arrangements in some ways better, in some ways worse, and often unthinkable to us right now. But more than that, God's ways, the ways of God's kingdom carved by no mere human hand, will show themselves stronger, more sure, and ultimately more lasting than any of this. Daniel saw this kind of in a dream, a vision full of symbolism. We see it in the pages of history. And we see it most clearly in the Lord Jesus Jesus came and walked on this planet at the height of the Roman Empire. But he taught and lived a way of life that was radically counter to that. It wasn't all about power and fear and insecurity. In fact, he he upended the insecure, narcissistic pursuit of power that animates the Nebuchadnezzars of the world. And he defused the self-protectiveness that drives the court advisors of his day and ours. Where you and I fight back, justify ourselves when we're threatened, or run and hide in fear, Jesus stood. Even when he was assaulted and mocked, and put in impossible situations by the power of empire, like like when he was blindfolded and beaten and asked to prophesy about who hit him. He trusted God. He stood firm. He turned to his father. He cast himself upon God in prayer and in faith. I mean, from the cross, he prayed for those who put him there, Father, forgive them. In fact, on the cross, He prays this for you and for me. He doesn't just ask it, actually. He gives his own life. He absorbs every failure, every lapse, every way we give in to fear and fight back or flee 
when we're put in impossible situations. He absorbs it and he carries it down to the hellish depths where it belongs and he rises up. He brings us with him in victory, in life, in freedom, giving peace and joy and forgiveness because we're now part of this world-upending kingdom that can never be overthrown or destroyed. And when we find our confidence in that, when we rest in all that Christ is and has done, when we're secure, knowing that we're part of his kingdom and we're loved, and the transcendent God of the universe has drawn close and cares for us, then we'll be able to respond like Daniel in whatever impossible situation we find ourselves in. Do you want that? I mean, I want it for me. I want it for you. So I'm going to pray that God would do that work in us. Our gracious God, we thank you that you are above all, transcendent, that you're trustworthy, that we can rely on you, and that in your grace and goodness you've moved towards us and established your kingdom in Jesus, a radically different kingdom, a kingdom that's not about fear and power, but about love and joy, receiving your generous gift in your grace and teaching us to give and to turn to you even when we feel like things are impossible we're under such pressure. Will you deepen our faith, we pray. Amen.